Hey, what is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Mile Higher Podcast. This is episode 212, and today I'll be diving into the very mysterious plane crash of Eastern Airlines 980. This is uh, one of those flights, and there's so many out there ever since MH370 started digging into some of the other mysterious plane disappearances and crashes out there, and there's a whole plethora of different ones out there and flight 980 is a crash that occurred where we have no idea why it crashed and we've never been able to recover the black boxes which the black box recorders give you all the flight data that basically allows investigators to kind of determine what exactly happened to the airplane and this one has a lot of different elements to it there could be a cover-up a government cover-up with this one there could be cartel involved it's just an overall really intriguing plane crash so that's what we're going to be diving into today and if you're watching on youtube and if you're listening i guess you haven't heard kendall's voice again kendall is gone she is not gone forever but she is on maternity leave she's having her baby or at this point the episode goes up baby could already be born so that is where she is she'll probably be out for a month or so it really just depends on how long she wants to take off but it'll just be me for a little while and obviously janelle is here uh, kind of co-hosting with me a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. Hello. <laughs> Hello. I wish I could sit with you, but all the equipment's over here, so. Yeah, we still have to run all the cameras and everything, so. Kendall's yeah. seat looks very sad, though, it does. on the it's, camera. It's honestly sad sitting up here by myself. <laughs> it it's like sad. such a big desk, and I'm just like yeah, it up is a here huge by desk. myself. I moved the chair and the mic kind of out of the way, because last episode, people were like, it's depressing seeing a chair. <laughs> An empty chair. So. We could just get a cutout of yeah, Kendall printed and just have it like sitting there. <laughs> we should. Oh my God. Oh boy. So yeah, that's kind of a little update on everything. But this episode of Malhar Podcast is brought to you by Shopify, Tushy, and Stitch Fix. So before we get into talking about Eastern Airlines Flight 980, I wanted to kind of circle back because it's been a while since we talked about MH370, Malaysian Flight 370. I mean, just some, what a mystery that is. And I was just curious to see if there's been any updates with it since it, it basically disappeared off the face of the earth. And yeah, so I wanted to go over some of that before we got into uh, Eastern Airlines Flight 980. But since last time we talked about it, there have been a few updates with MH370, but obviously we'd all know if the plane was found. It has not been found. But the group Ocean's Infinity recently committed to performing another search for the missing plane, and they're planning on having the search done in 2023 or 2024. Ocean's Infinity is basing their new search on the Godfrey theory, which Richard Godfrey is a 71-year-old retired aeronautical engineer after spending eight hours a day for seven years straight investigating this case, he believes he's pinpointed the flight's final resting place. And according to him, he thinks it's sitting on the seabed about 1,200 miles off the coast of Perth, Australia. Godfrey's main theory is that the pilot, Captain Zahari Ahmad Shah, hijacked the plane for political reasons, as Zahari was a supporter of the Malaysian opposition and he was acquaintances with their leader, Anwar Ibrahim. But one day before MH370 took off, Anwar Ibrahim was arrested and charged with sodomy, and many of his supporters believe these charges are bogus. So Godfrey believes that Zahari might have hijacked the flight in an attempt to negotiate his release. The plane was put in a holding pattern over the ocean for 22 minutes, and he believes that this might have been Zahari trying to negotiate 
He discovered that Zahari had a flight simulator back at his home and it had plotted a similar course with an endpoint over the Indian Ocean, which is very interesting. But here's a little clip of the Godfrey theory being explained. So what do you think happened? What do you think this pilot did? Um, I think uh, he was uh, very upset maybe on, on that Friday, the 7th of March 2014. Uh, one of the opposition leaders in Malaysia was uh, sentenced to five years in jail. Um, and he was a good uh, supporter of this uh, uh, gentleman, uh, Anwar Ibrahim. Uh, so I think he was uh, very um, upset and he decided to divert his aircraft and uh, uh, make it disappear in one of the remotest places in the world. So, in other words, this was an act of terrorism? Yep, it was a hijacking. Uh, it was an act of terrorism. Uh, in my view, but but you know I'm not a court of law, and I'm uh, I can only uh, say that that's my current theory. I'm still open if the authorities want to reveal more information that they may have, uh, and trying to keep an open mind on it. Um, but uh, it certainly looks that way to me at the moment. What do you think about that, Janelle? Mm. What's your take on this theory? I don't know. This theory bothers me so much, or just this whole story in general. But I could kind of see it, actually. Although I think it's weird. Like, okay, so if you're trying to prove a point for something political, right. why are you doing this to a bunch of random people? In your own life in is your, at stake, In your too. own life, right. Like, it's not... Are you, why, why is that a sacrifice? And I don't really think it's going to change anything post the incident happening. You know what I mean? Right. So, why, I don't know, I just feel like there's so many other things you could do when you are trying to protest something political rather than hijacking your own plane and then killing a bunch of innocent people. Yeah, and why not put yourself on a, a route where you could land, you know, yeah. if you got what you wanted, why wouldn't you put yourself on a route that you could actually then land again versus continue out to, like he said, the most remote place on Earth? Mm -hmm. it, and I mean, just... Over a over a sodomy charge and five years in prison. Like, yeah, it's not. You're gonna do that, that such a, a drastic yeah. thing over that. Yeah, I don't. I don't really feel like this was politically motivated. I don't even think this was like religiously motivated. I don't think this was. I don't even know if this was an act of terrorism. To be honest with you, I think this could be one of those weird, just really weird situations where there are things on this planet that we just either don't understand or. Um, you know, kind of going back to like the Bermuda Triangle and things like that. There yeah. could just be these sort of pockets across the earth where things just go missing and we don't exactly know why, whether it's, you know, some other, you know, entering into some other parallel universe or dimension, a portal or something like that. Oh, you're like going that. that angle. Yeah, I'm, I'm going, mm. I'm going way that way. But also from a more like realistic perspective, I think, I think this was, you know, they, he, he had some other plan and... Or something happened on board. I kind of think something happened on board. Like, yeah. I think something happened to the plane. And maybe he tried to divert it or yeah. somebody else totally took over the plane. True. Um, another thing I've thought about, too, is somebody remotely hacked the plane. Yeah. Um, some Either a government or just group of hackers or something remotely somehow but then, like, accessed it. Wouldn't but, you take responsibility? That's what I've always thought. Even yeah. if it was the pilot who hijacked the plane. Yeah. Wouldn't you want to be known 
if that was your plan yeah right like wouldn't you at the end be like oh by the way this is why i'm doing this or or crash the plane in a place where it can be found like on land or something so that you can get the black boxes and then maybe they can figure out like oh this was on purpose i don't just something if it was purposely done why would you want to do it and never be found again yeah Yeah. i don't know that's just my theory yeah i mean it's 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 a wild one because everything there is no there's been no trace i mean there's been wreckage that's come up on the shore that they thought is mh370 and i can't i can't remember it's been a long time since i think we covered it in like an intro topic like a year yeah. or two ago there was like some wreckage in yeah, there was. africa that washed mm-hmm. up and they thought it was wreckage from mh370 but if that was the case then i think that would have been bigger news and confirmed but i don't think that ever even got confirmed so I think this guy could be possibly right, could be out there uh, off the coast of Australia, but maybe not. I mean, this is one of those, uh, it's just such a mystery. It drives me insane. When this happened, I remember being like, what do you mean it's just gone? How do you just lose an enormous plane? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it makes no sense at all. And I don't know if it'll ever ever be solved. I mean, if if the plane did crash, it's quite possibly just at the bottom of okay well then why are we the not ocean? looking <laughs> well because it could it could have gone Maybe I sound to... stupid saying that but i'm like okay get a submarine we were just talking about it before we started <laughs> get a submarine and fucking go down just there start trolling the bottom <laughs> of the ocean i don't know well i think you have to remember too like in this part of the ocean this is like i mean some of the deepest parts are the amount of resources and i i guess you would think that they would be spending yeah. however much money they would right. need to and expending you know building an army of submarines to comb the bottom. Yeah, it's interesting. And I mean, maybe they're just like in with Eastern Airlines Flight 980. I mean, there could even be a whole another aspect to the story that we don't even know about with there could be a giant cover up for why we haven't found MH370. There could be something even more yeah. nefarious happening that is just being covered up and kind of trying to get it swept under the rug so that the truth never comes out. Mm-hmm. And I think oftentimes with a lot of sort of these events that could absolutely be something like that. Or, you know, there's still the theory out there that the plane landed somewhere and the plane was confiscated, whether it was taken over by some other group or, I mean, I think that's a little bit less likely, but you never know. I mean, you got to remember too, out in this area of the ocean, if you zoom in on, you know, from that zoomed out perspective, like some of the images we showed it doesn't look like there's anything out there but ocean but when you start zooming in on uh, google earth you start seeing there's all these islands out there i know and there are islands that have airstrips or uh, military bases out there so it's also possible that a plane of this size could have landed on some remote island somewhere and maybe whether it was it landed safely and every all everybody actually survived or it crashed and I mean, for all we know, there could be survivors from MH370 stranded on an island out in the middle of Dude. the Indian Ocean somewhere. Oh, that hurts my brain. Which to is think crazy to think that. about. I know. God, that's so. It's just like, and like we were saying before this too, with the the NASA's new James Webb Telescope and how it's able to see deep, deep space and the farthest into the universe we've ever seen mm-hmm. before, and yet we can't find an airplane on saying. our own planet. That's what I'm saying. Like, it just doesn't even make sense. I mean, oh, you would well. think with satellites and everything else that right. we'd be able to like snapshot all these islands and take all these photos That's and see I'm if it's saying. out there but fly a drone <laughs> i don't know maybe i sound stupid well, it just seems like we haven't tried enough yeah there's so many things enough resources totally well think about all of the events that have ever happened where we could use that excuse right 
they didn't use enough resources yeah. and you have to remember that like the people who run the world the people who run these corporations they don't really give a shit they don't give a shit like no. it's profits over uh, over everything and totally. so they're only going to expend so many resources before they're just like yeah who knows probably crashed and everybody died and it sank to the bottom of the ocean oh. so why why keep looking right but if you're the family of someone on board you're like that's so why would you ever sad. stop i just yeah. can't even imagine that yeah it's it's a it's really good. Yeah, I mean, just looking, look out there. There's so, so much space out there, even off the coast of Australia. I mean, there's so many islands out there. There's so many places that it could have landed and nobody would ever know that it landed. Because again, I think if we remember back to MH370, they shut off the, yeah. uh, all the equipment, the black boxes and everything. So, and it's very possible for a plane to disappear. It's really eerie to think about, honestly. Yeah, it breaks me out. I know I've, I've kind of had thoughts about that on airplanes yeah, in the last crazy. couple of years. It was just like, what if this pilot just does, decides to go rogue I and know. take take me somewhere I don't want to go or crash the plane or, yeah, yeah it's crazy. <sighs> I don't know, man. I don't know if we'll ever know. Yeah. I think that might be something we never figure out. Yeah. I mean, if this guy, this Godfrey guy is our best, best hope, I don't know. I'm not feeling too confident about, about <laughs> what he's. What he's, I mean, at least he's trying, I guess. At least he's out yeah. there trying to figure it out. Somebody is. Yeah. Because it doesn't seem like, at least as far as the public knows, there's that much work being done to find this aircraft. You would but, just think that if it's in the ocean, giant pieces of the plane would come up and go to shore, you yeah, know? Yeah. I don't know. But again, like, it depends on where it crashed, and, and a lot of it's probably deep, 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 under the ocean and any other pieces are could be just scattered across i mean it's a lot of space out there there's a lot of surface area to track and and they did search i mean if you look at the search area for mh370 they searched a fucking lot of area and combed a lot of ocean and in all the areas where they believe it would have went down they've searched it very very heavily so it's like seems like based on that the plane went somewhere completely different than we even know because again yeah they've gone out there off the coast of i believe off the coast of the australian air force i think has gone out there and searched for it yeah that's fucking huge area yeah that's a huge so that's like the whole there that's why it's such a mystery is because the whole area where you should be able to find some form of wreckage from this flight is just Mm -hmm. there's nothing so it's like where the hell did it go then and that and that's what we just don't know we have no idea Ugh. Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. And Eastern Airlines Flight 980 is another one where it's just like it leaves your head scratching. Like, yeah, well, at least happened. we know where the plane right is. the plane was found. Yeah, but we don't know why it went down. And there's a lot of other just aspects to this particular crash that definitely make you uh, wonder. Yeah, absolutely. So let's just go ahead and and dive into some background info on Eastern Airlines. Uh, just in general. So Eastern Airlines was a Miami-based U.S. airline that operated from 1926 to 1991. And the airline was one of the biggest and most popular U.S. airlines for decades. It was up there with major airlines like United, TWA, and Pan Am. So everyone was pretty shocked when they filed for bankruptcy in 1989 and dissolved in 1991. But the flight we're going to be looking at today happened six years before that, in 1985. So Eastern Airlines Flight 980 was scheduled to fly from Asuncion, Paraguay, to Miami, Florida with stopovers in La Paz, Bolivia, 
and Guayaquil, Ecuador. And this route was a staple for Eastern Airlines. But today, this route is pretty uncommon. The flight was scheduled to depart the evening of January 1st, 1985, so New Year's Day. And the plane was a Boeing 727-225 advanced turbojet. And it was a new plane manufactured in 1982. It fit around 180 people. But Flight 980 would only have 19 passengers and 10 crew members flying that day. So the plane would have been oddly empty. It might have filled up more though during the stopovers in Bolivia and Ecuador. There were 19 passengers scheduled to fly. Seven were Paraguayan, three were American, and nine were Korean. And of those seven Paraguayan passengers, five of them were members of the Matalones family. The Matalones were a very prominent and wealthy family in Paraguay, and they had made their fortune in home appliances. One of the American passengers was a woman named Marion Davis, and she was the wife of a U.S. ambassador to Paraguay, Arthur Davis. He was actually supposed to be on that flight, but he had something come up last minute. So Marion boarded the flight alone as she was headed back to the States to see her family for the holidays. Another one of the American passengers was a man named William Kelly, and he was a director of the U.S. Peace Corps in Paraguay. So if you don't know what the Peace Corps is, it's basically a U.S. government organization that sends out volunteers to aid developing countries. We don't know for sure, but it seems pretty likely that the Koreans on the plane were all orphaned children up for adoption. As for the crew, pilot Larry Campbell and co-pilot Ken Rhodes would be flying the plane that evening. Flight engineer Mark Bird would be joining them in the cockpit, and they were all American. They were joined by five Chilean flight attendants and two off-duty Eastern Airlines pilots. Since it was Pilot Campbell's second time landing at La Paz, there would be another pilot on board to make sure everything went smoothly. But he was seated in the main cabin and not in the cockpit. La Paz actually is translated to City of Peace, which I thought was interesting. And it's the highest capital in the world. It's like high in the, elevation, yeah, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, not high in another way, no. right? Yeah, high in elevation. <laughs> well, maybe, but maybe. Uh, no, high in elevation, though. Like, almost i think almost fourteen thousand feet or something like that um which is insane to think about i mean colorado is or denver is five thousand eight hundred and two eighty eighty feet and we climb 14ers all the time in the mountains and it's i mean it's fucking far up there so to have a whole city you know close to being that high up in elevation is wild yeah yeah interesting but the co-pilot Ken Rhodes was a no-nonsense military pilot, and Mark Bird was a former Air Force fighter jock. Originally, Mark wasn't supposed to be working this flight, but he swapped shifts with another flight engineer named Ray Valdez. They'd also be flying into El Alto International Airport, which is the highest international airport in the world. It's a whopping 13,325 feet above sea level. Planes have to land at 200 miles per hour because the air is so thin. And if they tried landing at a slower speed or the normal speed, which is 140 miles per hour, the plane would literally fall out of the sky. And their air brakes don't work as well, so the runways are twice as long as they usually are. El Alto is so high up that pilots were required to wear oxygen masks until they get to the gate. And passengers would have felt the altitude as soon as the cabin depressurized. Their breathing would get deeper, their heart rate would increase, and their minds would get a bit cloudier just from the elevation. So when we tell this story, it's important to really understand and keep in mind just how high up this area is. It can take weeks for a person to acclimate to the lower oxygen levels. I mean, it can take people just coming to Denver for the first mm -hmm. time. Uh, they can get altitude sickness just coming from sea level to the mile high city. And so I can imagine at 13,000 feet, I mean, over, just over top twice. of a mountain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
That's that's crazy, honestly. I can imagine what kind of pressure your ears are under flying into that airport. For real. They probably well, have hella alcohol tolerances, too. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> God. It would only be Pilot Campbell's second time landing in La Paz, and it would be a difficult one. The La Paz ground controllers didn't have a radar, and the little navigational equipment they had was not very reliable. So it was basically up to the flight crew to track their position. Now, some witnesses back in 1985 say that they saw Eastern Airline pilots at a major hotel in Asuncion. They were apparently attending a party with crew members from other airlines, and apparently they were at this party until 2 a.m., which was 16 hours until takeoff. Later on, an Eastern Airlines spokesperson said that their pilots didn't have any deficiencies despite partying till late the night before, which would have caused the tragedy that would take place less than a day later. And I was looking it up, because I know there's regulations on when pilots have to stop drinking liquor. Yeah, what is the... Um, According to Newsweek, it is, you have to stop drinking alcohol at least 12 hours before they fly. But then a lot of people say a more conservative approach is 24 hours. Some say eight. I don't know if there's like, I guess this, I mean, maybe it depends, but I think it's around 12 usually. So, I mean, I guess technically they weren't, you know, breaking the rules. If there were any rules back then, I don't even know if there were. But flying with a, even a bad hangover can't be good yeah. either. No. Like your mind state is still, I mean, you can even wake up drunk the oh, next, yeah. depending on what you drink. I mean, you 100%. can be slosh the next morning waking up getting yeah, ready do pilots take like breathalyzer tests before they fly i don't think every time i think they do randomly get uh tested a lot but that's a that's an interesting um point. let's see the faa does not permit pilots to fly if their blood alcohol is 0.04 or higher okay so i guess yeah do they have like a breathalyzer in the cockpit the pilots aren't required this is yeah, I don't know if this is true, but Google says pilots are not required to take breathalyzer tests before boarding their assigned plane each time. Yeah, I don't think so. Oh, they're tested randomly. Yeah. Mm. I think it's just random tests. But still, I mean, it does happen. Yeah. Definitely still does happen. Eastern Airlines Flight 980 departed from President Strasner International Airport at 5.57 p.m. that evening, and it was said to be a pretty normal, quiet flight. The outside conditions made it harder for the pilots to see as it was dark and cloudy outside and they had to rely on their instruments to tell them where they were going instead of just using visual references, which this is pretty normal for these kinds of flight conditions. And all pilots are trained to fly with zero visibility and solely off their instruments. It's pretty important. There were some pretty significant problems with the Omega navigational system that was on board Flight 980. It had a habit of being unreliable on that course to El Alto Airport. In fact, the Omega system could have been as much as four miles off, which... That's bad. Mm, yeah, that's a pretty big discrepancy there. And since the other navigational facilities nearby were so bad, there was no way to make sure that the Omega system was showing the plane's actual position. Eventually, it was time to begin the descent into La Paz. The pilots reported that they crossed the Dacone intersection, a waypoint at 25,000 feet. Air traffic controllers at La Paz cleared the flight to descend to 18,000 feet, and gave them a quick weather report. The pilot acknowledged the clearance at 7.37 p.m. Eastern Time, and he also reported that he expected to land at 7.47. And that was the last communication anyone had with the plane. Right after they passed the Dacone intersection, the flight started moving off course 26 degrees to the right of the airway, so pretty significant change. We don't know why the pilots did that, but it seemed like they might have been trying to avoid bad weather in the area. At 8.37, 
They reported Checkpoint Tacón, 55 miles from La Paz. At 8.38, La Paz Control cleared 980 to descend from 35,000 feet the to 18,000 like, oh. feet. <laughs> 980 acknowledged. Oh, God, and they're playing these weird Those were the very last words. At 8.45, the king of a microphone was heard. Then silence. Forever. Forever. At the lower right-hand side of the chart, just outside the map area, checkpoint Takong is depicted. The long line to the left, with a larger aircraft, is the correct route. The line to the right is the projected route that ended on the slopes of Mount Elemani, only 26 miles from the airport. So it was also reported that thunderstorms and mountains would have looked the same on that radar. So the pilots might have thought that the mountain terrain that was nearby was actually just some storms that they were trying to avoid. The plane was flying in complete darkness through some pretty thick cloud cover, so the crew couldn't rely on their eyes to see where they were going. So they had no idea that they were heading straight for Mount Illimani. And by the time they probably saw the danger in front of them, it was too late. A few moments later, Eastern Air Flight 980 slammed into Mount Illimani. The plane hit the mountain and the fuselage burst like a water balloon. And tragically, everyone on board was killed. The impact was unsurvivable. I'm guessing it probably would have been uh, a very quick death just based on how fast they were flying and hitting the side of a mountain. But the Al Alto International only received one sign of the crash, which was a single click from their radio. The crash happened 25 miles away from the airport, so not that far. The plane was just about to land. It was also reported that the plane was in cruise configuration and the impact site was at 19,600 feet. Some reports say that the plane crashed belly first, and if that's true, then it looks like the pilot realized that they were about to hit the mountainside, and he desperately tried to pull the airplane up above the summit, but it was too late. Other reports say the plane crashed nose first. In that case, it probably flew forward and shattered the fuselage. The plane and bodies inside of it were pretty much disintegrated on impact, which is common in similar plane crashes. The speed and the force is so great that it literally just blows everything to bits. The impact was so strong that the people in the nearby village said that it shook the entire valley. And the plane obviously missed its scheduled arrival time. And when it did, ground controllers tried to get in contact with the plane, but there was no response. And they realized that something terrible must have happened. And they knew they had to start their search for the missing plane. So before we get into the searches, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. The Bolivian Air Force was sent out to look for the plane's wreckage, and it took them a full 20 hours before the wreckage was found. Once they found the plane, they assembled an 11-man team of Red Cross rescuers to reach the site, but a storm hit and buried the crash site under several feet of snow, so the crew had to turn back due to avalanches. It was going to be an extremely difficult recovery mission, obviously because of the elevation, but also because of 60-mile-an-hour winds, heavy snowstorms, and below-zero temperatures. Because of these weather conditions, the search was called off one week after the crash. Immediately after the accident, officials from the ALPA Accident Analysis Board, NTSB, and representatives from the U.S. Embassy in La Paz headed down to investigate. One of those officials was Bud Leppard, the chairman of ALPA. They also tried to call in a high-altitude helicopter from Peru, but at first the Bolivian government wouldn't let the helicopter into the country. Bud thought that this was because the Bolivian government didn't want people to know that the Peruvian government had better helicopters, but eventually they agreed to let the copter in. The helicopter company, 
Sikorsky Aircraft actually offered to send down an experimental high-altitude helicopter to Bolivia. But when the mechanics arrived in Bolivia to reassemble it, they were so altitude sick that they couldn't work for multiple days. And by the time they did get it up and running, they couldn't drop Bud off because the weather conditions were so bad. Bud actually wanted to jump off the helicopter while it hovered at 21,000 feet and then ski down to the crash site. But due to the clouds and winds, a helicopter wouldn't be able to hover over it. So that idea had to be scrapped. Two days after the crash, one of the U.S. Embassy reps hired Bernardo Goracci to do his own expedition to the crash site. Bernardo was a young Bolivian climber who had summited Mount Illimani over 47 times, so very experienced. And he was joined by some other younger climbers, Juan Pablo Ando and Freddy Ortiz. And the search would be the first time anyone had actually visited the crash site. They reached the crash site in two days without any oxygen supplies. Since they were locals, they were already used to the air there. At one point, they were ordered to turn back, but Bernardo was able to insist on climbing up to the crash site. They confirmed that there were no survivors of the crash, and they did find some wreckage. And some of the items they found included Eastern Airlines tickets, suitcase tags, and the pilot's flight plan. But they weren't able to find the plane's black box, which obviously they want to find this. It contains crucial information about the plane crash. For those that don't know, the plane's black box basically has two components. One of them is the cockpit voice recorder, or CVR, and the other is the flight data recorder, or the FDR. The CVR records all the sounds and conversations coming from the cockpit, and the FDR keeps a continuous log of flight data like airspeed, altitude, and other important measurements. They're called black boxes, but they're actually painted bright orange so that they can be found easily in case the plane crashes. And they're pretty key to getting to the bottom of how a plane crash happened. So if you don't have it, it's very difficult to determine what happened to the plane. And because of this, they're built to be pretty much indestructible. That way they can survive the incredible force of a plane crash. They're also equipped with beacons that ping for 30 days so that they can be located. But those are today's standards. And now it's required that black boxes are made out of steel or titanium. But back then they could be made out of aluminum, which made them a lot less sturdy. So Bernardo and the other climbers did not find any bodies either. But he did find blood. And they also discovered lots of plane debris, papers from the cockpit, suitcases, crocodile skins, and shoes. When Bernardo and his team went back down to their base camp, the Bolivian military swooped in and detained all of them. They separated the group and individually strip-searched and questioned them. Then the military took all of them to the airport and interrogated them some more. Bernardo says that he was too scared to tell them about everything he had found at the crash site. So he didn't tell them about the fact that he had found blood, just that he had found some crocodile skins and plane pieces. One of the military men even threatened Bernardo. He warned him, Careful telling anyone about this. I will ruin you. So the Bolivian report on the accident stated that there were no bodies or blood found at the site. Two months after the crash, Ray Valdez paid for two Bolivian alpinists to do an exploration of the crash site. So if you remember, Ray Valdez was the flight engineer who swapped shifts with Mark Bird. And if he hadn't done that, he would have actually been on that fatal flight. The Bolivian alpinists were able to make the dangerous hike up to the crash site, and they found some of the plane's wreckage and luggage. But again, they weren't able to find the black box. And the weirdest part is that they didn't find any bodies or blood this time. This was the only expedition that was able to get video footage of the crash site. There was another private expedition done in July of 1985 by a woman named Judith Kelly. So Judith Kelly, the widow of William Kelly, was able to make it up to the crash site. She collected notes from William's friends and other victims' families, and it was her way of helping her and the other victims' families get closure. She spent three months preparing and training for the trip. She even took a mountaineering course in Alaska. 
and Judith was determined to make it to the site, even after a rep with the NTSB told her to let it go and move on. It was pretty, pretty badass, yeah, honestly. After is. all of that, to still want to go up there and risk your life just to try to get some information and closure for herself and others. Mm-hmm. She spent a few weeks in Bolivia getting acclimated to the thin air. Then she hired Bernardo to take her up to Mount Illimani. And on July 5th, 1985, they hiked up to the crash site and Judith spent the visit reading out letters she had written to her husband. That's so fucking sad, man. Oh, man. And then she took those letters and buried them with the rest of the victim's family's letters. That's amazing that she did that, not just for herself, but also everyone else who had family members die in the plane crash. Yeah, that's really admirable of her. But her mission didn't stop with the Bolivia trip. Once she got back, she started pushing for the NTSB to do a proper investigation. After all, she was just a private citizen and a victim's widow. She made it up to the crash site just fine, so why couldn't the NTSB do the same? The site clearly wasn't inaccessible. By now, there had been three expeditions up there. So all that pressure she put on the NTSB worked. Well, sort of. A few days after she appeared on the Today Show, they agreed to send out another team after winter in Bolivia ended. So they'd assemble a team with the help of the Bolivian Red Cross and head over in October of that year. But the expedition would actually turn out to be massively botched. The NTSB picked the investigator, Greg Feith, to lead the expedition. Greg was determined to find the CVR and the FDR, but things didn't go as planned. The Bolivian government didn't equip them with climbing gear, so they had to bring their own. Plus, they had to bring all their own food, and according to Greg's report, he was told equipment and food could not be guaranteed in Bolivia. And he was also told that the Bolivian economy was too unstable to use credit cards, so he tried to take out $2,500 in a cash travel advance, but he could only get $600. But Greg wasn't told about the credit card situation until three days before the trip at an NTSB meeting in Washington. So when he tried to get the advance from them, they told him that amounts over $300 needed to be approved weeks in advance. That meant that the group was going to have to pay for any expenses out of their own pocket. Again, had to go over there with $600. The problem started right from the first day of the search, when porters delivered supplies to the wrong base camp. It took hours of sitting in the cold before the Red Cross made it to the right camp. The expedition team was made up of seven people, including Bernardo, but the porters only brought two tents that fit two people each, so there was only room for four of them. Plus, the Red Cross didn't bring any stoves or food. They literally had to melt snow to make a cold pot of noodle soup, and each person could only have one cup. So the group was now trying to hike miles above sea level without so much as a full meal. That's just ridiculous. Crazy. It seems very purposeful that they weren't given the proper supplies and food. But the next morning, things started to go downhill. One of the climbers started showing symptoms of pulmonary edema, which is sometimes a deadly condition where the lungs start filling with fluid. He and another investigator had to descend back down the mountain and get medical attention. While the rest of the investigators made their way up to the crash site, one of them fell into a crevice and was injured. They were still able to press on after, but then another investigator started showing the signs of a pulmonary edema. And when the team finally got to the crash site, another member developed signs of severe altitude sickness and now only three members of the team were physically able to dig for wreckage. Keep in mind that all these guys were highly trained climbers, but they were literally dropping like flies. Obviously, a lot of this is due to the extreme climate elevation, but the Bolivian Red Cross really fucked up the search for them. And finding the flight recorders didn't seem like it was even possible. 
After all those months, a lot of wreckage was buried underneath 20 to 30 feet of snow. Which, what are you going to do? Dig with shovels in 20, yeah. 30 feet of snow? There's just no way. Two of the crew members made it down the mountain in one day. The other stayed at the second base camp so they could recover. To do that, they'd need the Red Cross to bring them food, stoves, and fuel. But shockingly enough, when the Red Cross arrived, they'd only brought clothes and two gallons of Kool-Aid. What the hell, man? <laughs> oh my God. Literally trying to get them to give up. So that search was able to make it up to the crash site, but not for very long. And they never located the FDR or CVR. There was a rumor that one of the passengers, Enrique Madalone, was carrying a suitcase with $20 million in it. At the time, he was the richest man in Paraguay. So in 2006, a Bolivian climber got a group to camp at the glacier below the crash site as they were hoping that a duffel bag full of money would turn up. They didn't find any money, though. All they really found was some snakeskins and lots of children's clothing. The Flight 980 crash is the highest recorded controlled flight into terrain, meaning it's the highest crash recorded where the pilot unintentionally flew into terrain. Interesting to note that there was a lot of other notable plane crashes that year, including an Aeroflot Tupelo that crashed due to pilot fatigue with 200 people on board, and the Japan Airlines Flight 123 crash, which was caused by improper maintenance, which killed a whopping 520 people making it the deadliest plane crash in history. One year later, in 1986, 22 Eastern Air baggage handlers were charged with using the airline to deliver 300 pounds of cocaine to Miami every week for three years. Those baggage handlers would fill up extra suitcases with cocaine and load them onto flights headed for the U.S. Then the baggage handlers in the States would then set them aside and have other smugglers come pick them up. They were also able to hide cocaine in places on the plane. In one instance, a pilot actually found cocaine stashed under his seat. It was later discovered that the airline illegally transported 25 to 40% of all the cocaine supply in the United States. Wild. That's insane. That's a lot of 40%? cocaine. 40%? That's a lot of cocaine. I mean, again, this was the 80s and yeah, true. shit was way different when it comes to customs and border security. But still one That's a lot. airline you think somebody would have noticed. They were busy. Damn. Plus, according to a former pilot, the airline was allegedly laundering money for the Medellin drug cartel. The money would be loaded onto Eastern flights to Panama in unmarked pallets and then wired to the United States. So then fast forward to 2016. Two explorers, Dan Futrell and Isaac Stoner, set out on their own mission to figure out what had happened to Flight 980 30 years later. Dan was a former army soldier who served two terms in Iraq, and Isaac was his roommate and a former student at MIT. They were both just two guys working office jobs when Dan pitched an idea to Isaac. Find a crash plane's missing flight recorders. Dan was inspired by a Wikipedia page titled List of Unrecovered Flight Recorders, and when he saw that the black box for Flight 980 was missing due to inaccessible terrain, he took that as a challenge. It was a crazy idea, but Isaac wanted to tackle that challenge. They had no personal connection to the crash. They both just had a shared sense of adventure, enough money for a trip, and enough time off of work to try and solve the mystery themselves. So the two trained for five months in preparation for the expedition. They even started spending the nights in tents that simulated the low oxygen levels they'd be facing in Bolivia. Meanwhile, Dan was writing updates for his blog. He was in charge of updating it with the progress of the search. The duo named their mission Operation Thonapa, after the Incan god of knowledge. Four weeks before the trip, a reporter with Outside Online named Peter Frick Wright saw the blog and asked to tag along. And pretty soon they had two more people joining them, a climbing guy named 
Robert Roch, and their expedition cook, Jose Lazo. They'd be the fifth expedition of Flight 980's crash area ever, and it would be the first one in over 30 years. And the expedition would hopefully bring some closure for the affected families, including a woman named Stacy Greer. Her father was Mark Bird, Flight 980's flight engineer, and she was only three years old when he died in the crash. For so many years, Stacy was searching for an explanation for her father's death. The NTSB never properly investigated the crash, and that left her and the other victims' families dealing with this horrible, unexplainable grief, and nobody had any answers. And all those funerals had to be done without their loved one's remains. After all those years, nobody had ever brought back the bodies. Operation Thonapa would hopefully change that. The Operation Thonapa team set up a base camp at Mesa Kala on May 22, 2016. To get there, they had to hike two miles up 3,000 vertical feet. The debris field was further down the mountain, and over the years as the ice melted and froze again, the debris from the crash slid down the mountain cliffs. The team was pretty confident that they'd be able to find things that other searches couldn't find all those years ago. The conditions in Bolivia had been pretty warm that year, and because of climate change, the glacier that the wreckage was buried under was starting to melt, so they were finding parts of the plane that had been preserved in ice for decades. By 1 p.m. the first day of searching, they found human remains. They were the first search to actually find any bodies, and those remains had been frozen for so many years that some of them still had skin, muscle, nerves and fat on them. In total, the team found six different human remains. Each time they found the remains, they held moments of silence for the victims and buried the remains. Finding all the plane wreckage got pretty normal for them, but finding the bodies never did. And they found plenty of plane wreckage too. They found things like pieces of the fuselage, a jet engine, life jackets, and children's shoes. At one point, they found the letters Judith Kelly had buried decades ago. The team also found a very large amount of snake, crocodile, and other lizard skins. These were all illegally poached. The skins were probably being smuggled back to Miami to make handbags and clothing items. Those lizard skins were pretty durable, almost like leather, so it's not unusual that those survived all those years under the ice. It's important to note that these skins turned up in many of the original searches, and there were really a staggering number of skins that the search group found. It wasn't just a couple. It was a lot, like millions of dollars worth. So this was definitely a pretty coordinated smuggling operation. But anyway, the group continued to search over the next three days. At one point, they found a roll of magnetic tape, and they thought it could have come from the flight data recorder, but it also could have just been an old movie reel or a home video left in someone's luggage. Still, they held out hope that this could have been one of the keys to solving the mystery of Flight 980. They also discovered some orange pieces of metal, the black box containers are orange, so they hoped that this was a sign that they were getting closer to the actual black box. That day's search continued to wind on, and they found more human remains, more scraps of metal, more personal belongings, but no cockpit voice recorder. By dinner time, they were tired, and they would started to accept the fact that they weren't going to find them. Going back to the victims' families without the CVR was a hard pill to swallow. Their odds didn't look good, but Isaac and Dan didn't want to accept defeat, so they just kept pushing on, and they kept digging. Just then, Isaac found a hunk of smashed metal. He picked it up and he noticed that it was attached to an orange piece of metal. And when he and Dan inspected it, they found some cables labeled C-K-P-T-V-O-R-C-D-R. The two couldn't believe their eyes. Isaac announced to the group, this is it. This is the black box. It was on uh, the mountaintop of Illimani in Bolivia. 
and the reason for not for, for the black box never being recovered was simply listed as inaccessible terrain. But there, there had been, what, four or five expeditions that tried to find the boxes. They never even found the wreckage, right? So we, we, we thought inaccessible terrain was a bit of a challenge, that, that thing that was listed on the Wikipedia page. Additionally, so we knew that the past few years have been the warmest on record down in Bolivia, and the glaciers receded about a quarter mile. So we thought we might find things that people had never found before, uh, both human remains and the black boxes themselves. And you, I mean, making a long story short, you ha were there, what, five days and all of a sudden made a fascinating discovery. Right. So we were on the lower debris field, which was almost a square mile at this point. And uh, after several days of searching, uh, we managed to find a piece that was labeled clear as day, cockpit voice recorder. Uh, we also found a roll of magnetic tape that we hope came from that voice recorder, and we're really to hoping to work with the correct agencies to get that material analyzed now. It really was a miraculous discovery. After 30 years, the black box was coming home, and the group couldn't wait to have the NTSB finally take a look at it. So the group flew back to the States with the black box and talked to one of their friends with the FAA. That's when they found out that they accidentally made a big mistake. That friend told them that they had violated Annex 13 of the Convention on International Civil Aviation. Basically, that document says that when a plane crashes, the country where the crash happened is responsible for leading the investigation. So if any outside group wanted to examine the evidence from Flight 980, they'd have to get permission from the Bolivian government. There were no Bolivians on the flight, and Eastern Airlines was a U.S. airline, but it didn't matter. The Bolivian government needed to give them the go-ahead before they could examine the black box. The NTSB was the only agency with the equipment needed to examine the tape, and they confirmed that they'd have to get the Bolivian government's permission to touch it. The problem was is that the U.S. and Bolivia didn't have the best relationship. Back in 2008, President Evo Morales kicked the U.S. ambassador out of the country. It accused him and the DEA of planning a coup. For months, the Operation Tanapa team tried to get in touch with officials from La Paz or the Bolivian embassy back in the U.S., but they didn't hear back from anybody. The black box pieces and the tape sat in Isaac and Dan's house, basically in limbo. It was as if nobody wanted to go near that flight. But finally in December of 2016, the Bolivian government agreed to let the NTSB take a look at the evidence that Isaac and Dan discovered. And in January 2017, they officially handed over the remains of the black box. It really looked like this mystery was going to be solved once and for all. But tragically, this wasn't the case. One month after the NTSB received the magnetic tape, they announced that it was not the cockpit voice recorder tape. It was actually an episode of the TV show, I Spy, dubbed over in Spanish. Dan and Isaac were disappointed, but they were happy that they could help out in some way. And at the very least, after all those years, someone was actually taking a look at the crash. So many families felt like their loved ones had been forgotten, but Operation Tanapa showed them that there were people that still cared about them, and it gave many of them some sort of closure. Stacy Greer said that seeing the wreckage proved that her dad didn't just disappear, and Isaac and Dan actually came back to Reddit recently and posted that there were more expeditions in the works. Isaac mentioned that there would be film crews involved. So that leads us to theories about the crash of Eastern Airlines Flight 980. Is there a conspiracy in all this? In the crash or in the search? Or is it both? But it could be neither, considering the inaccessibility of the crash site and the conditions that conceivably could have caused the accident. Was it a faulty plane or a bad maintenance job? It doesn't look like it as the plane was new and had been running fine for the past three years as far as we know. Was it an accident based on inability to see, unreliable equipment, 
seems more likely given the conditions, the Omega system and the lack of radar and things like that. How does the radar not pick up the difference between bad weather and a fucking mountain? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I'm not an expert on radar, but it seems <laughs> like, like seems like there would probably be a way for it to determine that. But I mean, again, this was the eighties and True. it was just different technology back then. So, I mean, God, look, the guy flying the helicopter with Kobe Bryant smashed into a mountain. True. So it's like, even in 20, what was that? 2020 when that happened, mm -hmm. people still fly into mountains. It's like, yeah. as it's weird. It's weird how that is. You'd think that that would just never be a thing. Yeah. Like out of all the things that could happen in any sort of air, aircraft that flying into the side of a mountain would just not be one of them but i think it's harder than than people think yeah, to obviously. avoid those things yeah is it possible that the crew or pilot sabotaged the flight and why there's no indication that any of the pilots or crew members had a motive to crash the plane could it have been passenger sabotaged again if yes why and there is no indication, as far as we know, that any of the passengers would have wanted to take the plane down. But how is the Red Cross search so botched? Yeah. I mean, come on, Kool-Aid and clothes? Clearly, they're not trying to help that much. And why are two independent searchers able to find the wreck after 30 years of finding nothing? I, I think a big reason is because there. I think there was, like, a lot of act illegal activity going on with, like, the cocaine and, then like, all the snake skin and stuff. It almost seems like they were just trying to cover it up quickly because if they find all of that then okay well then where does that lead to next like you know start connecting the dots yeah, and yeah before you know it, you could be uncovering a huge drug operation yeah i mean and it seems like the bolivian government has some involvement yeah with this smuggling operation as we know many there's a lot of governments across the world where there's organized crime happening and obviously cartel groups especially in central and Mexico I mean the the influence that they have over the governments is insane yeah. it's like on insane levels and they almost like are the government yeah exactly in a lot of ways they they are in a lot of places so it wouldn't surprise me that they were just trying you know trying to because it could have compromised like you said it could compromise other operations yeah. they had going on if a full-blown uh, search and investigation was done and ultimately could have led back to the Bolivian government and Bolivian government smuggling to the United States. And what kind of ramifications would that have on the entire country of Bolivia? And, right. you know, could that, that have led to larger conflict? It seems like that maybe is what they were afraid of. And again, back then it was just totally different. It was so much easier to, I mean, prior to 9-11, air, aircraft security and airport security was just totally different. I mean, before all that check baggage, I mean, you could just drop bags off for a flight different than the one you were going to be on and nobody really verified where those bags were going to go it just kind of went where you wanted it to go so like i just mentioned before it seems like there's definitely a possible cartel connection here it's actually been theorized that a drug cartel secretly made a trip to the crash site and on that particular trip they either grabbed the cvr and fdr tapes uh, maybe and they want to go retrieve as much of their cocaine or any other items they're trying to smuggle on that plane even though it was labeled inaccessible train, it clearly was not inaccessible yeah. train. No. I mean, it's difficult to get to, yeah. but it wasn't like impossible. So, I mean, let's be real. If humans know where something is and there's something important that they don't want other humans yeah, to know, like, gonna go get we it. will find a way to fucking get it. Yep. You know? Yeah. It seems to me like it's possible that whatever group was responsible for, 
I, I think the crash itself seems to have been accidental. Yeah. It seems to have been a, an error in in flight path based on faulty equipment or just lack of experience flying into La Paz and you know they were 25 miles from the airport mm -hmm. so I mean they didn't have to deviate that far off before they were headed into the into the mountainside so it seems to me like an error by the the captain of the of the yeah. plane is what actually ended up in the plane crashing I don't think because it's like why would anybody crash that plane on purpose so close um, so close to the airport and whoever's running this flight or smuggling things through this flight, why would they want to crash the plane either? Right. seems to me that this went down and nobody had an, any idea that it was going to go down. But once it did, somebody went up and got what they needed from the plane so that it sort of got swept under the rug and nobody really knew what happened to it. And it sort of just became this mystery because it's interesting that, I mean, they found reptile skins and they were like, Maybe they grabbed as much as they could of that and they still found more, but it's interesting that they didn't find, you know, that much else as far as like money and things like that. Yeah. But then again, I mean, you it is fly a, a plane yeah. into a fucking mountain. It's probably going gonna to be... obliterate nothing. That's true. So That's like, true. I'm not surprised that they didn't find cocaine, whether or yeah. not someone <laughs> took it or not. Like, yeah. I'm pretty sure that's going to burn up. Cocaine is going to get obliterated. Yeah. 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 But again, there's no concrete proof that the cartel or somebody went back up there to get the the black box or anything like that. But it's definitely interesting when you consider how easy and rampant smuggling on planes was back then. And not only that, there was flight Avianca flight 203, which was actually bombed on orders from Pablo Escobar in 1989. So again, possible, but based on the evidence, it seems unlikely that this was this plane was brought down on purpose. But I keep coming back to all the botched searches. Uh, it's definitely suspicious. You know, why was the Bolivian government so unwilling to visit the crash site? And why did the NTSB not push harder for a proper investigation? I mean, I think NTSB, from that perspective, again, it goes back to not having jurisdiction yeah. over the crash area. And they obviously, at the time, things were political relationships with, with Bolivia weren't great. So they're not going to just like go and invade Bolivia without permission to, to search the crash site. But it seems to me the Bolivian government absolutely has some responsibility in all this. You know, why did they just sort of not really do that much or search that much? But they just kind of seem like they didn't care. Mm -hmm. And they just were willing to let it just be buried up there. I think it's kind of a bullshit rule that even if the airline is a U.S.-based airline or whatever it is, wherever the plane crashes is who's responsible for dealing with it. Yeah, you would think you'd be able to bring it like it's an, it's a U.S. airline. Right. So you'd think that the rule would be that whoever owns the actual plane right. would get to come in and investigate the crash as opposed to where the crash happens. Especially if, you know, let's say that a crash happens in a country where the, the airline, you know, whoever owned the airline has a bad relationship with that country where it crashed in. Well, then they're obviously not going to want to, you know, partake and help you. So it just, it seems odd that it's kind of all reliant upon the whoever or whatever country it lands in. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I get it to some extent because it's, it's like more complicated since it's in somebody else's airspace and somebody else's land. And, you know, I guess I get that part, but it is, it is weird that they weren't more willing to, to be like, all right, NTSB come in right away and investigate. Yeah. 
you guys have more resources, more technology than us. And then they just were refusing to help in any way. Clearly. I mean, here's some clothes and Kool-Aid have a nice hike. Like it just seems like there's definitely more to this. I think there's definitely somewhat of a cover up here with the Bolivian government. I think that they have more involvement in this and maybe had involvement in the actual smuggling operation. I mean, the, it seemed like the Bolivian government was, was a mess at the time. Uh, but there's another theory that Bernardo was paid off by the Bolivian government to retrieve the black box before anyone else could get it. Um, and again, Isaac and Dan, when they went on their expedition, they brought back pieces of the black box. But again, it wasn't, you know, nothing's ever really been confirmed with it. And even to this day, the CVR and FDR tapes themselves are still missing. And they're, Isaac and Dan are still planning more expeditions to go up there and keep searching. I don't know. It seems like it's been searched pretty good mm-hmm. at this point. He said it was like a square mile on the lower debris field. So it's a big area to search. And again, it's up high, so it's a lot harder to comb through everything. But I don't know. Or they just didn't make the, the boxes that indestructible back then. And it was obliterated from the crash. But so then snakeskin wasn't? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. I honestly feel like someone came up and took it. Yeah, that seems like the more likely scenario to me is that we'll never find it because it was snatched right after it was crashed. Yeah. Because, I mean, it wasn't inaccessible. You could get up there and before snow covered up. But, I mean, maybe not. Maybe it's just buried. could just be buried still under inside of this glacier. Even Isaac was talking about how it was really hot that year and... You know, it was one of the warmest seasons that they had, so a lot of the snow was melted, and you would yeah. think that they would have the best chance, but... Yeah, it seems like Isaac and Dan, especially after the, this tape wasn't from either of those, that kind of seems like they think that it's probably not there anymore. But why else? Why would they keep going back, I guess, is the, is the flip side of that. Why keep spending your time going to search this crash site? True. Uh, when there's never going to be a way to determine what happened to it. I mean, I think based on all the circumstances, I would think that people would conclude that this was an accidental plane crash. I think the bigger mystery is who was running this drug operation, this smuggling operation to the United States. Mm -hmm. And we know that Eastern Airlines was involved in in that before. So Mm -hmm. how come that wasn't ever investigated fully to figure out who was actually doing it? But... There's a lot of government cover-ups that never get, you know, vetted out or thoroughly investigated. So it doesn't surprise me that this is still a mystery today. Yeah. But yeah, let us know what you think about this one. This is a very, very weird one. And let us know if you want to see more episodes on sort of these mysterious plane crashes, plane disappearances. I find these episodes pretty interesting. I like to dive into just unexplained things and mysteries like this so let us know thanks again for joining us for another episode a mile higher thanks to janelle for helping me out so i'm not all alone up here but we'll see you guys next time until then keep taking your mind a mile higher